Hello, and welcome to Rookie Movie Reviews. I'm Jenny. And I'm Dan. And Dan, what do we do on this podcast? We're rifling through the top 100 movies of all time on IMDb, as chosen by fan viewers. And this is relevant to 2019. Things may... 2020? Yes. 2019 is when we... Started. Started. So, things change. People change. The public perception of any media can differ wildly based on the creators or current paradigms of human thought. But in this moment and on this day, we watched Vertigo, a 1958 production directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And Dan, what did you think of Vertigo? Well, Jenny, I think it might be one of the 100 best movies of all time. <laughs> How does that sentence strike you? How do you feel about that? I feel fine. Okay, so Vertigo, it's a classic, obviously. Another Hitch, Hitchcock classic. Yeah, and the... You know, we, we were thinking like, oh, we kind of want to talk about Hitchcock overall uh, in more detail. So we're going to need to watch some additional movies. And it turned out Vertigo was the, the sleeper cell on the list the whole time. Yeah. Because we had gotten through Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, and Vertigo's up there. Um, <laughs> the opening of Vertigo is weirder than his other openings. Because his other openings are all... Flashy title sequences. This one's flashy, but it's hyper close-ups on a woman's face. I think the other title sequences that we've seen have been establishing shots of the city in which they are placed. Oh, okay, yeah. And this one is just a close-up on a face. I guess if we're going to be on the topic of opening shots, because I'm always bringing them up, because it feels like something good to mention. But I will say that North by Northwest is my favorite, by far. Where... It's the rectangular slats sliding in and out for the title cards. And then it turns into the office building at that certain angle. And you just watch a reflection of the cars go by for a while. Wow. It's a pretty cool shot, in my opinion. This I... one is not... I don't care about it. That's fair. I don't even know who it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be the woman in the movie. Oh. Okay. Sure. So, anyway, after this trippy, spirographic, lip-face intro, yes. <laughs> we get a rooftop chase scene uh -huh. where we see James Stewart and some cop running around on roofs, and we see a classic fall scene from Hitchcock. I don't know why all of his movies seem to have some kind of fall scene with <laughs> By current standards, pretty bad CGI. Yeah, all all four of the movies that we watched had one of these. Yeah. Where it's a top-down camera onto a great distance, and the guy is a cutout, and I guess Hitchcock thought this was the dopest thing, <laughs> and the cutout just gets smaller and smaller, and then bam, they're on the ground. It looks really bad. It looks so bad. And I guess in the context of this movie, it's actually important because it, is, yeah. it establishes that uh, the main character, Scotty, or John, has vertigo. So he kind of sees the distance get longer. That's the name of the movie. It is. Um, I have one other call out about this opening scene. 
I just want to say it got me really excited for the movie because I had no idea what was going on in Vertigo. <laughs> I feel like you hear Psycho, you know what's up. And if you hear Rear Window, I think people have a general idea, even off the title. Well, because they've all seen the Shia LaBeouf classic. Disturbia. If Rihanna wasn't a marketing campaign for that movie, I don't know what was. Maybe it's actual marketing campaign. Posters and commercials and things of that nature. But anyway. the reason this opening shot... <laughs> I did not mean that to be shots fired. <laughs> Based on your reaction, that was definitely shots fired and I take it back. The reason I got so excited about the opening was because it looked like it was filmed at that very specific time of dawn or dusk. I kind of thought it was dawn where it's just starting to be day but the sun hasn't risen and it's all very purple. And it was this cool color palette of purple and blue and orange and there were some neon signs and watching it I thought you don't see a lot of scenes at this time of day in movies in general it's always either nighttime or it's nighttime but it's really bright out so it looks like daytime but it's kind of blue so you know it's nighttime or it's daytime it's never just right on the cusp so I was pretty excited about the movie off of this and then I ended up being disappointed you mean the golden hour yeah, I, maybe. A little after the golden hour. Like a half hour after the golden hour. <laughs> the golden hour! <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah, I did not pick up on that. It definitely seemed like blue night to me. But that's neither here nor there. We do a time skip. And we see Jimmy Stewart. He didn't get a name yet. No. We see our leading man. You're carrying the mystery of the movie until he's named. <laughs> We see our leading man on some kind of sofa thing, and he's talking to Midge, who is a fashion designer who does mainly brassieres, and he's wearing a corset, so Jimmy Stewart likes playing men who are injured for some reason. <laughs> and they do they do some really bad um, background establishment. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> we were engaged once. We work in college together. Isn't that right, Midge, my ex-wife? And she's like, yeah, Jimmy, but I broke it off. Or just some <laughs> shit like that. It's just so over the top. Also, the only way these two were in college together is if Johnny was a professor. <laughs> yeah, another massive age difference between these characters. And we're just supposed to believe that uh, James... What's the actor's name? Uh, Jimmy Stewart. Or James Stewart. James Stewart is just some sexy young man who's a bachelor and all the women want him, you know. It's just, that's the mythos Hitchcock <laughs> is presenting us and we have to accept it. I guess. If only they had uh, the same kind of CGI they used for De Niro in The Irishman. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that would make a world of difference. I wonder how the movie would read if it was someone who was actually... In the same age range as these female actresses. like I think it would still read pretty creepy, but it might get more of a Paige Bagley in You vibe than oh, a really creepy Nice recall vibe. on the name. I couldn't have called that guy's name if I was... I think it's Paige Bagley. Hold up at gunpoint. Uh, Joe. Joe and You. You had a call out in the North by Northwest episode of the camera movement, and that definitely came up in this movie 
in this scene, actually, because he talks about his uh, fear of heights very, very many times. Says it's, what is it, uh, acrophobia? Yeah. It's like, it's my acrophobia, see? I've got acrophobia. I'm going to kick this thing in the rear of this acrophobia that I have, see? It's vertigo, see? It's called acrophobia. <laughs> and I'm going to beat it by going up a little at a time, see? And then he gets a stepladder. And when he gets the stepladder is when the camera work comes in, in that uh, he climbs up and we see a more and more extreme angle up towards his face. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we're watching it from Midge, and it just reminded me of your point oh, during yeah. North by Northwest as the camera kind of moves around the room and we see it from all these different perspectives. So I guess it's fair to say that as far as Hitchcock goes, like this guy knows how to use a camera to, to talk in his movies. He, it's not... It's not entirely just uh, dialogue-based. Yeah. But on the stepping stool, we do also get a camera pan down to the street below. Uh-huh. And Johnny faints. And that also set up a bit of a, a red herring for me. Because at, at the start of this movie, what I thought was a cool color palette, I'm like, oh, sick. Like, this is weird. I don't see this too much. And then he faints very... In 1950s standards, not manly like, <laughs> into Midge's arms, and he's completely depowered by his fear. You know, and I thought, damn, this is going to be uh, out of the norm, and that is not what happens at all. But it was like such a gut punch as it uh, the layers were peeled back to show what was really going on with these characters. That I'm like, wait, I thought he was, you know, weak timid guy or filled with fear and it only comes up like twice in the movie surprise yeah. he's an asshole he's he is turns out he's an asshole and uh, hitchcock <laughs> is not super stoked about women and, <laughs> or i guess he's super stoked in the way that he views them as sexy little objects to look at and yeah. not really right for <laughs> he hates woman and spielberg yes the uh, fun fact that we saw on reddit of Hitchcock refusing to meet with Spielberg uh, while he was alive. Yeah. Just a salty little bastard. He's a bitch cock. (laughs) Um, While he's meeting with Midge and fainting, they talk about (laughs) how an old friend of his hit him up from a specific address, which was apparently on Skid Row. And Johnny says, oh, I'll hit him up for a beer. I could go for a beer and tell him my my troubles. And then the next scene is that he goes to visit his friend and he runs a shipyard and is a very wealthy looking shipbuilder. And it was a funny little reversal where the shipbuilder friend who contacted him from quote unquote Skid Row offers him a drink. And then uh, Scotty takes a hire and says, oh, it's a bit early for me. (laughs) I don't want one, even though he's just super stoked to get, uh, you know, tie one on. And uh, then... Again, this really got me excited for the movie, the first 20 minutes here, because his friend asks Scotty to be a private eye and spy on his wife because he believes he is possessed, she's possessed by the ghost of this woman. Um, that it's like such a wild hook. Yeah, and good hook. I thought, damn, this is going to be a weird movie. I'm ready. It's mm-hmm. going to be like... Crystal Fairy or Crystal Cactus. Yeah, that was a weird movie. Yeah, with and, Michael Sarah. Yes. And after some conjo- cajoling, he... Uh, cajoling. 
Cajoling. Yeah. Cajoling? I was going to say cajoling. Do you pronounce the J? Yes. You absolutely pronounce the J. You sure? I'm positive. I am positive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely certain that you pronounce the J in huh? cajoling. Oh, no, I'm going to So... In any case, we get this weird-ass uh, hook of possession and a private eye movie is on our hands mm-hmm. of him stalking uh, a wife. Him being... Him being Scotty. Being the private eye to follow Gavin, the shipbuilder's wife, around town and figure out Which what's we, going on. We don't even find out her name until much later. Yeah, I forget what her name is. Which Madeline? is why I said that woman. Oh, okay, Madeline. Yeah, and then uh, the... Before we get into the next meat of the movie, there's just a little stakeout at a restaurant. Well, before we get into that meat, the the thing... There's a lot of layers of meat. (laughs) Much like an ogre. (laughs) (laughs) So... Is the end of the movie the ogre's internal organs? And we just get in there and eviscerate Up in its guts. We get up in this movie's guts. You want a fucking ogre? Ew. <laughs> Only the one you drew. It's a handsome ogre. It's an orc. Sorry. That's a deep cut. Follow Danny <laughs> yeah. Art on Instagram. Yeah. I draw stuff. I draw stuff. So anyway. So what meat do we have to talk about? Yeah. Ani agrees to help because he finds out Gavin's wife wins. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Ani, yeah. Nice. Good good continuation of the bit there. (laughs) Go fuck yourself. He, Johnny, doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe in this possession. But Gavin convinces him because he follows her to some beach and he asks, Hey, where were you? And apparently he looked at her odometer, and though she said she just went five miles, she actually went 94 miles. Yes. A mysterious mileage. And a woman would only lie to her husband if she was possessed by a ghost. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. So this is what makes Johnny agree to help. And then they go to the restaurant with the red walls, Irvin's or something like that. Ernie's. Ernie's, thank you. And... The way the music plays when he first sees her, it's this really romantic, swelling music. And I called it, and I said, oh my god, they're going to fall in love. And technically, it happens. But he stalks her all around San Fran. He watches her go to a flower store, and a graveyard, and then a painting. And Can I jump in real quick just about the restaurant? A museum. Yeah, jump in. There's one element that I thought I don't know at what point in you know cinema timeline things are experimental and weird versus uh iterating on something that has already been experimental and weird but what I'm trying to say is when he sees this woman Madeline Madeline she lines up in front of his eyeline and everything kind of goes dark around her and it's not super noticeable like a spotlight, but there's a subtle glow on the wallpaper around her head. Yeah. and Halo the, lighting. Yeah, and it's uh, dreamlike and weird, and it kind of builds into what has been going on in the movie so far with things being 
dreamlike and weird you know the weird color palette and uh the weird plot hook and now this bending of reality to show how smitten he is it's uh, i thought it was interesting i don't know if it's uh something that moviegoers at the time would think what the hell was that that's not real (laughs) but (laughs) i have have no substantiation for this but i feel like it is hearkened to theatrical lighting in a real theater because that would be pretty common like theater before film like kind so, of putting a spotlight on yeah, someone. Yeah, so using but not... those kind of lighting techniques made sense. And now that we're in cinema, that does seem more well, modern cinema. Cin- cin- oh jeez. Cinema. Yes. That does seem more fantastical and dreamlike. Like we see that in Scott Pilgrim, the way Ramona Flowers gets highlighted because there are more dramatic shots nowadays. And I feel like the dreamlike candlelight, like a dream you can't quite <laughs> Please. I remember a... that night, the dream light. Oh, Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anything for a stupid reference. We're going to hashtag Hamilton in this podcast. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that kind of lighting. I don't know if it would have made 1960s audiences been like, that's so strange for a movie. Because I feel like it was pretty common, the soft okay. lighting. But we should talk to Donna and Jack about that. Mm-hmm. My grandparents, who are old. 80s. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you were talking about he stalked her at these locations. Oh, yeah. And then... The museum or whatever. Yes, and then he talks to the curator, artifactor, whatever. Some some guy with a pamphlet, just one pamphlet, comes up to him. And he asks, hey, who's that painting? Or, well, he asks about the girl. And then he asks about the painting, because those are his priorities. And the curator is like, oh, you can keep this booklet. That's Carlotta <laughs> Valdez. Um, Which is the headstone that she visited at the, uh, the graveyard. Yes, true. And also important to note here is that the flowers she picked up from the florist look very similar to the flowers in the painting. And then she's got a spinny thing in her hair, and it looks really similar to a spinny bun thing that the painting woman has. And afterwards, they go to a hotel. They. Uh, Carlotta slash Madeline goes to some hotel. And Scotty follows her, and he sees her in the window. But then he talks to the hotel runner, and she insists that Madeline is... Well, Carlotta is not there. Uh-huh. And this is a spoiler for the end of the movie. Can I spoil it? Yeah, we can do away with the mystery of the plot. We find out that a, a different woman gets killed and Carlotta, Madeline, is playing her. And it's like some big, huge ruse that Madeline, this Madeline character is playing the wife who is slowly losing her mind. Yeah. I feel like that plot point doesn't get developed at all. Yeah, so this whole hotel sequence was weird because it it really made me think, is this dude going to get supernatural? You yeah, know? I was hoping it would. And <laughs> the reason I thought, because you actually said something that made me have a kind of backtrack my thought, but the whole thing I'm trying to formulate here is that he goes into the hotel asks about the woman up in the room, and he points directly at the room. So she's absolutely up there. We all saw her. 
And the woman at the desk, the hotel runner, says, oh, no, no one's up there. I have the key right here. So then you mentioned, oh, she's uh, playing this wife that Gavin wants to kill. Gavin wants to kill his wife. And this is a cover wife for that plot. But there's just no way to justify that she could get up in that room without being noticed by the hotel clerk, without using the key, and getting out in time because they go up and check and yeah. confirm there's no one in there. So how the hell did she get in there unless she was, like, climbing on the outside? She had to go up two or three floors. So I kind of view this as a plot hole. Like, there's... Unless there's something super obvious I'm missing. Because I remember when we were talking about North by Northwest, we thought oh, the character gets out to this guy's house in Rushmore by walking from a hospital. But I remembered after that they actually took a taxi out there. Well, no, you had to confirm with somebody else who watched it. Yes. We both did. Had to confirm after that he got a taxi out there. So I'm wondering, is there some element here that means she could get up to the room, be spotted, get out of the room, all with no knowledge of the hotel curator and not passing either of them? It just seems... It's, it's so minor, but it's a problem. Yeah. It seems at this point as though Hitchcock just wanted to make us think it might be a supernatural story yeah. and didn't bother figuring out a way to get her into or out of the hotel. <laughs> I'd agree. So big fat minus on that part. Yeah. Big man. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, Johnny is so shooketh that he goes to Midge's home again and he barges into her house and he steals her whiskey. <laughs> Yeah. He he asks Midge if he can make her a drink with her <laughs> booze. And she's like, no. And then he makes himself one. Yep. And then he's like, who do you know that knows small history? And apparently she does know someone. And they go to a bookstore. And the bookstore clerk tells them all about Carlotta Valdis and how she had an illegal baby and men had power back then to just steal babies and disappear. Yeah, the bookstore clerk sounded disappointed that it wasn't that <laughs> way anymore. This fucking movie. Um, so long story short, Car- Carlotta Valdez was this pretty young thing that got taken advantage of, had a baby, her baby got stolen, and then she killed herself because of the depression. Yes. All at the age of 26. Yeah. Which I am turning in a month-ish, month and a half. Yeah. Please <sighs> don't uh, have your baby stolen and you get depressed and kill yourself. That I don't would have suck. a baby. Unless Pugsley is my baby. Pugsley? He's not even around. Somebody stole him already! I'm gonna kill myself. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they... I just like the bookstore setting in general. It looked like a store I would like to go in. Yeah, I'd want to find a book there. I also wrote here that this movie has cool dusk and dawn scenes. So there must have been another evening time type uh, shot. But yeah, I I don't remember what it was. Scotty meets with a client. uh, Oh, Gavin. I forgot Gavin's name. (laughs) Scotty and Gavin meet and then he does more tailing. Yes. And they drive out to a bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge, to be exact. And they're just kind of like standing around. He's tailing Madeline. And then she jumps into the water. From how high? From about a foot and a half, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
She's not up on the bridge. She's on the ground underneath the bridge and jumps into the water. And Scotty freaks out, drags her out of the water, and this is where the wheels start to come off. Yeah, he kidnaps her and takes her back to his place. And then while she's unconscious, he dresses her, undresses her, sorry. And then she wakes up and he's like, here, you need a robe. Because <laughs> I undressed you. She also, wakes up with him standing in the bedroom over her while she's in bed naked. <laughs> and she does not freak out. And this is a love story. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it really seemed like when they were talking that she made an excuse and ran away. And I wrote down, stay sexy, don't get murdered about it. But JK. <laughs> <laughs> um this is also when Midge comes by his place, and apparently she's stalking him. So it yeah. seems like she saw Madeline leave, so another woman leave. Um, and yeah, she peels out as soon as Scotty tries to chase Madeline out. Yeah, he follows Madeline again. So Midge is, it seems, obsessed with Johnny. Uh, but now he is obsessed with Madeline, and he follows her again. And that's a very bad private detective move because he's no longer private yeah. and he's not a very good detective and then they have some kind of tree date because <laughs> he's yeah. trying to trigger her well she brings a letter to his house and when he's tailing her again he tails her to his house yeah and she's trying to leave an apology letter and then he lays it on so thick that they shouldn't wander alone and they're both gonna wander let's wander together and the dude thinks it's his good friend's wife at this point. Yeah. So he's a horrible scumbag. And we think that it's this guy's wife, even though we learn later she's an actress or something. <sighs> yeah, so they go to watch this look at Sequoia's on a tree date. And he basically, she pretends to go into a trance and become Carlotta. Yep. I and guess it would be her pretending. This whole thing is a ruse. Yes. And he starts grilling her like where where do you go where are you who are you where are you right now where do you go <laughs> and uh it kind of annoys me and then she runs off very dramatically to the ocean to the ocean and she talks about dying and wanting to die and being destined to die and then they have a big long kiss yep at the ocean shore <laughs> big kiss uh so out of place, but the music is supposed to be romantic and swelling, and I guess in 1958 you should cheer for this love story, but yeah. in 2020 it's like, yo, what the hell? <laughs> this is toxic. So after they kiss, uh, Midge, there's a new scene, Midge wants to surprise Johnny with her artistic talents. Yes, this is a weird one. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> And uh, it turns out what she has painted for him is a portrait of herself. As Carlotta. As Carlotta. And this really freaks Johnny out. And he runs off. And then Midge starts pulling at her hair. And she's just like, stupid, stupid, bad. Yeah. How? No. So, um. <laughs> so she is uh, very smitten, which is 
weird because, again, she broke off the engagement for some reason. In college. Don't you remember when they were in college and then they were engaged I for guess three I forgot weeks? about how they went to college together and then got engaged for three weeks and then broke off their engagement. But they're still good friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess she's in love with him again. Whatever. But Scotty listens to a dream Madeline has. Ooh. Also, this is like... The last time we see Mitch. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Until the hospital. Right. But, but what does that's that such count? a minor. Um, after this, we cut back to another Scotty Madeline scene. That they're, at, they're at some old farm looking thing with carriages. It's like a church, actually. Oh, yeah, San Juan Batista, because Carlotta has memories of being in a convent there. Oh, right, a convent. So it's Scotty, again, trying to trigger some traumatic memories. And uh, uh, they get up to some uh, clock tower, bell tower thing. And they have some dramatic scenes, some dramatic back and forths. And he says, I love you to her. And she says, it's too late. And then she runs up some stairs yeah. And apparently just kills herself about it. Yeah, she's pretty much a lemming. Because they bring her, he brings her here to awaken memories of Carlotta, because he believes she's possessed at yeah. this point. And they're talking about horses, and he's trying to justify her horse memories with these plastic horses. And she's just wistfully <laughs> looking off, describing horses. And I wrote down that this is where it begins to feel very silly, which might sound dumb that at this point it begins to feel silly, but this scene is really over the top. They're especially, jumping the shark. Yeah. So especially like you say, when she said, he says, I love you, she just turns and sprints up the stairs <laughs> and he tries to chase her to stop her, but he has vertigo. So oh, he right. looks down and he the gets title. stunned by the height. And then she jumps out a window, and he watches her fall past the window and die. And she crushes against the terracotta roof tiles and uh, is now dead. And I have a question for you at this yes. point. Yes. Do they overutilize or underutilize Scotty's fear of heights in this movie? They underutilize it until they overutilize it. <laughs> I guess, is the amount of Vertigo scenes good or bad? Bad. Why bad? Because when they do it, it's over the top. It's nothing important until it's everything. <laughs> I guess. But I would argue... I'm conflicted. I'm truly conflicted. Because uh -huh. I agree with you. His fear of heights is what causes her to die. But also, he has specifically avoided high places... And he fails in the moment that he has to go to a high place to save this woman. So another big scene with the two of them is when she jumps off the bay. And that's just a few steps. And that's silly as shit. That is deeply silly. But he also doesn't pause for a moment. No. Jumps right in. And I also wonder, like, I feel like it's underutilized because they called the movie Vertigo. And it only comes up, as far as I'm aware, this is the last time it comes up. Unless I miss something later. But also... Well, there is another tower scene later. Oh, okay. 
And then if they did more, it would just be like, I fucking get it. He's afraid of heights, you know? Jesus. Three times is a theme. Yeah. Four times is a meme. So she falls and then the cops are coming and he just, we see a pretty impressive wide shot. We see the whole building, people running in from one side, he's on the other side, Mm -hmm. and he just leaves. Yeah. He goes. I'm not getting framed for murder. I'm getting out of here. But it's immediately made very weird that he just walks off because the next scene is him in court. Yeah. For this. (laughs) And they brush over the fact he ran off like it's nothing. It's fine. And there were no witnesses. It's just a woman. There were no witnesses to him freaking out. So we've got a dead woman potentially pushed out of a window. A guy who confessed to being there and has said... As the prime suspect for her death outside of suicide, mm-hmm. that, oh, I'm afraid of heights. I couldn't have been up there. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. <laughs> so, like, the whole trial is him. Like, it's clearly homicide, even though it's not actually homicide. But he, there's very little questioning. Yeah. The, the judge kind of shames him for being a fucking coward for being afraid of heights. <laughs> He's like, ah, if only we didn't have a coward protecting her, she'd still be alive. Too bad you're a coward and afraid of heights, you weak, weak man. And uh, then he says, but I want the jury to know that does not affect the facts of the case at all. Except he's incredibly weak and cowardly. And then the, the trial ends. And I did like one quote out of this. Um, the judge says, the law has little to say on things undone. Which in context of the scene is dumb because we have no idea that things have been undone. He could have done a lot of things. But in, as a quote, it's kind of, oh yeah, I suppose so. That's kind of weird. Um, Love is not admissible evidence. Is that from Community? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good show. Copra! The Copra. I'm going to write that down. Copra. And uh, yeah, so... Uh, this was kind of ruined later on by the revelation that uh, Gavin was doing a ploy. Spoilers! We already spoiled. But he's very nice to Scotty about being responsible through negligence of his wife's death. Which, you know, it was a setup. <laughs> it was a setup. But at the time, I'm like, oh, wow, he's such a supportive friend. And it's, it's just, no, he is trying to get him to go away because he got away with murder. <laughs> Get the uh, fuck out of here, Scotty. So we see a nightmare. Jenny, you want to talk about this thing? Yeah. So after the funeral, he's laying in bed, and he has this really trippy flower animation thing. And it's this flashing blue, flashing red. And <laughs> he comes a- he comes upon a grave, and you made a really funny joke. Like, how can we tell this is a dream sequence if not for the flashing colors? He has a guilt-stress dream about killing her, and I think this is supposed to, like, trigger a more intense emotion for her, because right after this, he goes to Ernie's, which is the bar of the first stock, and we see him really simping over this corpse, and he's sitting (laughs) at the bar, and he watches a similar-looking woman come in, and he, like, freaks out about it. Well, but then the same shit happens with a, a a brunette, and he starts stalking her, 
and it's Judy Barton, and he follows her to her house, and he's like, have dinner with me. You're gonna have dinner with me. We're having dinner together. <laughs> There's two things I want to talk. Oh, sure. Uh, first, the dream sequence. Oh, okay. You mentioned that it was very hokey while we were watching it, and I agree. And I also wonder, like, this is going to sound like a joke question, but I'm serious. Okay. When were audiences ready to see normal things happening on screen and intrinsically understand that we're viewing a dream? I mean, that's been going on since Shakespeare. Before then, even. Okay, so do you think it was just Hitchcock got excited that he had some color shift technology? I think so. Okay. Because <laughs> watching it, it's like, we've seen so many movies where they're in a dream and at most, the background is blurry, you know, and then you're like, oh, it's a dream. But most of the time, it could just be normal footage and you automatically know, oh, this must be a dream. But this one is like, no, no. We're playing shrill music. We're going to have a disembodied head. And have animated yeah. flowers and colors. And then the second thing I want to mention was before Scotty goes around to all these locations and stalks one, he is in the hospital. Oh, right. Because oh, he's right. just catatonic. And this is when Midge shows up for the last time and like plays music for him and he doesn't react. And Midge is like, I suppose you can't even hear me. <laughs> and then just leaves. And then he goes on his little stalking thing and finds Judy Barton. Yeah. Yeah, and he forces his way into her apartment and gets her to have dinner with him. And then he proposes at, like, the first date. Like, do you want to see each other more forever? And he says, hey, let's, you know, we'll go dancing. And then, okay, so it's, like, vague dating setup. And then he takes her clothes shopping. And uh-huh. this is when the abusive shit starts really hitting the fan. And I, I mean, stalking, <laughs> stalking aside. So, I hate to keep interjecting. Oh, no, it's but okay. But there are very minor things that happened prior to this that I thought worthy of calling out. So, they get dinner and, like, we get the big reveal at this point. That he, he stalks Judy Barton and after they make a dinner date, he leaves. And it's revealed that she is... The wife that was killed, and she was a body double for Gavin's wife. Because she was planning on running away. Oh, right. Before dinner, and she decides not to. And then we learn that Gavin broke his wife's neck and threw her off a a roof and set up this whole ruse of a possessed wife to get away with wife murder when it seems like he could have just thrown his wife out the window anyway and gotten away with it. You know, for some reason, I thought that really happened after the clothes shopping scene, but now I'm remembering her gently touching her gray suit that was in the closet because it got established. Yeah, okay. And then the second thing I wanted to call out was after the dinner date, when he, I believe, proposes, is another really cool lighting scene. They've got her silhouetted against this window with teal and aqua light from the neon sign outside. And the room is just lit in this bizarre, uh, like, paint-type color. And it's just so cool to look at. And it's a shame that by this point in the movie, I was so uh, done with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, the the twists, were, the twists were not, oh, my God. The twists were, oh, my God. Come on. 
but yeah, just I wanted to call out the the lighting throughout the movie does really cool stuff. That is really fun to watch. Any who's a uh, series yeah. of dates, and then they go clothes shopping. This clothes shopping scene is so uncomfortable. Apparently, in 1958, they didn't have mannequins, and they would make a woman come dr- out dressed in whatever the outfit I took, was. I took that for granted. I'm like, okay, they can see how it looks. <laughs> it's really weird to just... Are you hired as that? Like, you're going to be putting on clothes and coming out, and people are going to start to... Maybe that's the thing in, like, really high-end stores. Maybe. But Jimmy, like he said earlier, or Johnny said earlier that he was a man of independent means, but... Slightly independent. Mostly yeah. independent. Is What does fire look at it look like in 1958 as opposed to being a billionaire? Yeah. And he's a retired cop, and he's the type of cop that is chasing criminals, like, yeah. across the roof. As far as I understand the a cop... cop. Yeah. As far as I'm aware of cops, you're not making it cash-wise unless you're, like, fucking commissioner or something. Uh, but beat cops. Yeah, I feel like, I guess I always kind of assumed cops made, like, 50K, like a decent living, but, yeah, nothing, but nothing outstanding. Nothing to live in a apartment and go dress shopping at upscale In San stores. Francisco, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> he gets really abusive about the outfits that he's buying her, and the sales clerk, like... Oh, he's a man who knows what he wants. And (laughs) then he takes her to get her makeup changed. And he's like, this is exactly how the makeup's going to be. And then takes her to get her hair dyed. And he's like, no, this is the fucking color you're going to (laughs) have. And And all the clerks are like, oh, we'll have her just how you like. And this is what you want, right? And he's like, yes, yes." It's 1958. (laughs) Women don't have rights. Um, Anyway... She's even, she says she's cool with it. <laughs> She'll change for her man gladly. Yeah. And we see her later looking exactly like Madeline did as opposed to Judy. And Judy was a cool goth GF. <laughs> 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 and uh, I have never hated a fictional man more, I think. Yeah, so they, after this makeover... And she comes out looking exactly as she did before she quote-unquote died. Yep. And Johnny's like, sick. You you look exactly like her. Perfect. And then they have a very intense kiss. And the music is swelling. And it's classic end of movie love kiss music. Mm-hmm. And it's just so ridiculous because... I mean... Okay. Let's finish the movie and then we'll talk about how much of an asshole he is. Okay. I just want to know who saw this and thought it was a love story. (laughs) Okay. So after this, it's been some time. They've been dating. Apparently they live together. And they're going to go to dinner to celebrate. And she's just getting finished up. And he's like, aren't you ready yet, you dumb whore? (laughs) (laughs) Correct quote, yes. (laughs) She's like, I just need help with this necklace. And it's a red necklace that looks the exact same as the one Carlotta had, that Madeline had. And uh, after this, Johnny seems a little different. He seems a little surprised. And he suggests going for a bit of a drive for dinner. And we cut to the car, and she asks, Hey, aren't we going to dinner? 
And he's like, why, are you hungry? Even though it was already established, yes, they were both hungry. Yeah, she's like, let's go, I'm hungry. And, and then girls are in the car about it. They arrive at this forest that was established to be a hundred miles away. Yeah, back where she committed suicide the first time. Yeah. So they drove a hundred <laughs> miles in a 1950s car. And then it, it took a hundred miles to be like... We getting dinner <laughs> or <laughs> something else happening? You have to probably imagine that at least twenty some miles out, she knew what was up. Yeah, like oh shit, <laughs> we're going to San Juan Batista. I should say I have to pee or something. Yeah. Oh, or walk back. But uh, yeah, so they reveal that he's on to her. And he phrases it like she's the villain. And his tip-off was the necklace. Yeah. So up up to this point, he thought he had just tricked a brunette into looking exactly like his dead girlfriend. Yes. And then he forces her up the tower. As any good boyfriend would. And they're screaming at each other at the top of the tower. Mm-hmm. And then a nun appears. Scary nun. And looks at... She's shadowy and hidden in the darkness. And this terrifies Madeline. Judy. And she screams and backs up where she supposedly killed herself before and falls to her death. And the movie ends. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) A paramount picture. Yeah. Okay. So, Uh... before we start ragging on Scotty. Okay. As we talk about this, I think... Is this all 100% intentional? Like, clearly, when Scotty is dragging her up the stairs, he's manic. Yeah. He's clearly a crazy person in that moment. And he forgets and his acrophobia. And he, yeah, he forgets his acrophobia. And also, he's enabled by the society to make this woman in his image, but she's in tears and he is uncaring towards that. And he's like, Hey, you'll come around, you know, like, you're going to look like this now. And she's crying about having to buy this dress and wear this stuff. And he is clearly this singularly possessed person and ultimately drags her up this tower to his, her death. And I wonder, like, he he forces her to forsake her identity for him. And she says, if, if you'll let me find, which is poorly written and can only really be construed as her being willing to give up who she is for him to love her. But I wonder, like, if all of this at the end is supposed to be Hitchcock saying, like, oh, we had this hero solving the case, and now he's become the villain, you know? And you are not supposed to think, oh, they're together at long last. And you're not supposed to think, oh, she is a tricky. How could she do that to him? But you're supposed to think, holy shit, I have been sympathetic with a guy who had the potential to be a psychopath this whole time i never felt sympathetic to him for a moment well i mean during the beginning of the movie up until he cheats on his friend with his wife like i didn't have an established feeling about him i kind of thought he sucked the whole time i guess did you have because i know i did i disliked this guy from the jump because of who he was in rear window Maybe there's that bias, but also the entire, like, we were engaged was just such bad writing. 
And then, yeah. like, how skeptical he was of his friend who is in dire straits until it became clear this woman was doing something a wife shouldn't do. So, do you think there's any credence to... Let's... I mean, we view these all with a modern lens. But imagine you're a 1950s person. Do you think that Hitchcock wanted us to be on Jimmy's or John's John's side at the end or Madeline's side? Are we supposed to think Madeline's a victim or uh, Scotty? If you're a sexist piece of shit, I guess Johnny, because it establishes that she manipulated him. That's true. Well, Gavin paid her to manipulate him. Right. But she still went along with it. That's true. So I think the movie was trying to show... So, feminism aside, there is this woman who lied to Johnny from the very beginning, had a very extensive routine to keep up the charade, was getting paid and allowed an innocent woman to die, and then she kept up the ruse and refused to comply to her man's wishes at the beginning until she admitted that she will change for love because his love is the power that will make her better. And then, at the very the very pinnacle of who she is pretended to be, gets revealed to Johnny's detest, she has to die because she's this corrupt character. So I think this movie is supposed to be Johnny's the hero. And women fall madly in love with him. Also, I feel like picking James Stewart, who plays an everyman very frequently, is supposed to be a casting choice that isn't isn't supposed to make you feel negative thoughts about him. I was with you up until she had to die. And What else Scotty's is going to happen? Here. They're going to live happily ever after, after she manipulated him and he changed her? No. I think... She realized that he was, I think it tried and failed. I do think it failed in the endeavor of making it so she was the victim at the end uh, and not the person who got their comeuppance. But I think it tried to make it as though Scotty clearly had this uh, obsession and he took it too far and he was a dangerous person at the end of the movie And the target of his danger obsession was Madeline. And I think that they tried to make a movie where, oh yeah, Madeline is bad. She's manipulative. Oh shit, Scotty's crazy. Oh shit, it's getting bad. Get out of there, Madeline. Too late. Scotty was dangerous all the time. And I think that it failed at that because, as you point out, there's a lot of scenes that have conflicting messaging with that and really celebrate how much of a lovable guy Scotty is. And I think they don't pump the brakes on that until far too late. But I I just, I don't think... I guess it's like a, a fake woke movie where they're like, hey, isn't, isn't it rough how uh, women are treated? And then it treats women roughly while trying to be on the good side, and it misses the point. 
I disagree because based on the themes of Rear Window, Psycho, and North by Northwest, the way women are treated in those movies, I don't feel like it's trying to be woke. I feel like it's keeping a theme. That's fair. And I mean, I definitely felt the the bile in my mouth when when they were going towards a conclusion and all that. But I think I think it tried and failed and in its trying like it's that much worse because it's like you know in, in my view it just looks like oh you thought you were doing something but you're not you're contributing to the same narrative that you thought you were combating that's how I read it but yeah if you disagree you know I I can totally well no you asked me to take a position so then I started playing devil's advocate to support oh, it well what's your actual position Johnny's a piece of shit fuck Hitchcock this movie sucks <laughs> Johnny is a piece of shit. I guess I, I guess I asked you to take a position and then just assume that was your position, for real, rather than just the one that. No, fuck it. That poor girl. Yeah. Yes. Um, hundred percent agreed. It's totally uh, misunderstanding your your position that whole time. Sorry, but yeah. Uh... <laughs> tell me, tell me about it from the opposite position. I don't think mm. that's what I did. Now tell me why you're wrong. <laughs> you didn't. You but, didn't. Uh, yeah, uh, Hitchcock wrote this movie uh, kind of with his head up his ass, I feel. Well, he didn't write it. He directed it. Hitchcock it's based got off a screenplay some French novel. With its head up its ass. With its uh, cabeza up its derriere. I don't know French for head. That was Spanish. I, well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Derriere is ass. In French, right? Yeah. Nice. It's a French novel. You're multilingual. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> I will say that the movie is shot well. Yeah. And the colors are cool. Yeah. it's The color palette is interesting. And the plot hooks at the beginning are intriguing. It is. I... <sighs> I would write a fanfic about this movie and make it so much better, I think, even with shitty writing. You don't write Because what, what can be worse than remember how we were engaged in college and then <laughs> you right. stopped being engaged? <laughs> and now we're friends. But you still fine. love me. Oh, stupid fucking midge! <laughs> stupid midge, I'm going to pull my hair out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really... Because all the other Hitchcock movies we watched, I get it. You know, I'm like, I get it. It's well made and it's a sexist relic of the time, but the plot is tight and the writing makes sense and it's shot well. (laughs) And it's just held back by all this other stuff. And then this one's only shot well. Yeah. And I think the plot is so bad. It's such a bad plot. Who comes up with. Who is like, we will justify this ridiculous doppelganger wife. Plot when you could have just stabbed her and it would have been way simpler. And he ends up getting away with it anyhow. I mean, yeah. Scotty takes a fall, as he should, because he totally loses his mind. Anyway, I don't know. I don't have much to say about this beyond what we've discussed at length. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I'm just mad and I got madder watching the movie. Once I felt like I realized. (laughs) Oh, you were were mad detached from the movie and then watching it. Because he said, I'm just mad and I got madder watching the movie. 
mad. This movie did not help. <laughs> I'm angry about. Yeah. Did talk? Did you mean talking about it made you matter? Like no, watching it. I mean, when we were watching it, I was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, not okay. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, you want to rate this thing? Yeah, I'm three. Yeah. One, two, three. three. Oh, I was going to say four. Three and a half. Yeah. I just, I have, I have no desire to watch it again. The story was dumb and it was shot well, but that's not enough to make up for it. I, I really okay. am learning that I put a lot of stake in characters and if not thought provoking plot, at least tight entertaining plot. I want to like plot. the people I'm watching. Yeah. Nobody in this movie ended up being likable. Yeah. I guess I, I feel fine watching a movie where everyone is flawed, but at least there's, relatable. There's, yes! None of these people are relatable. Those sweaters and dresses seemed way too hot for San Francisco. <laughs> Nothing was right. It's like in um, Lives of Others. You know, I you end up caring about this secret police. Uh, Lives of Others criminal. is so good. He's not a criminal, but... He's a criminal. A guy we've come to learn in our modern sense and outside the context of that movie is someone who would be a criminal or a bad person. Right. But somehow they make you care so deeply about this guy. And uh, this movie, you start out on the same side as them in the investigation. Like, we're normal people yeah. trying to figure out what's going on with this woman. And you never care for them half as deeply as you do about a secret police Russian Gestapo guy. You know, yeah. it's... It, I think it's just evidence that it's not as well written as it people might up. think. It does not hold up. Anyway, three and a half, not very good. Don't want to rewatch it. I wouldn't recommend it. No. It's not in my know. top 100. No, not even close. Knives Out is way better than this movie. Agreed. I agree. And Bruges <laughs> is way better than this movie. Right? Injustices. Yeah. All well, right. our social media is RMR underscore podcast on Twitter. And rookie movie review at gmail.com, singular. And our website is rookie movie reviews with an S.com. So follow us on that stuff. Feel free to tweet at us, email us, Facebook us. Facebook us. Oh, yeah, our Facebook page is rookie movie reviews. Yeah. You know, so find us there. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Sorry we hated this movie. I hated it. Uh, me too. Cool. All right, bye. Bye.